0: You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Adam Coffey. He's a CEO, board member, best-selling author, and acclaimed international speaker. Adam is a visionary leader who drives transformative growth and fosters high-performance cultures. With 21-plus years of experience as CEO, Adam led three national private equity-backed service companies for nine private equity sponsors. During this time period, he completed 58 acquisitions. His track record includes notable outcomes measured in the billions, averaging 5X MOIC multiple on invested capital at exit. On this week's episode, we talk about how should one go about evaluating private equity groups when they're looking to be acquired? What are the roles of consultants in a private equity deal? What is rolling over equity in a transaction and how that can become a residual income stream? What should one look for when thinking of joining a mastermind group? And how did Adam get the nickname, The Chairman? This and much more on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now let's begin. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. All right. Welcome to this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. I'm very excited for today's guest. I've read both of his books, and well, I just can't wait to see him live during one of his speaking engagements. But for our audience out there, Adam, can you give a little bit of your history, a little bit of your career up until this point?
1: Sure. Sean, good to be here. Good to see everybody out there. Hello to all your listeners out there. Usually, when I meet people for the first time, there's four things about me I'm a veteran in the U.S. Army. Military taught me something about discipline, teamwork, leadership leadership. Second thing, engineering. Engineering made me an anal retentive strategic, just ask my wife. She'll tell you, yes, my mom. She'll tell you as a kid, I played neatly. Matchbox cars were all parked in a row and the houses were all lined up. And I didn't play in the sandbox because I didn't want to get dirty. It's like very meticulous in in terms of strategic planning. I blame engineering for that, although it was probably my background that led me to engineering, a detail oriented career field. And then thirdly, I was at GE. For 10 years. I call it the Camelot era. It was during Jack Welsh's run. His last 10 years were the 10 years that I was there. And I credit GE with teaching me how to run a business, but you have to put yourself back in that time. Tech doesn't exist yet, right? It just does not exist. We are not using the intranet the way that we use it today, for sure. And so it was kind of a nascent industry that hadn't really taken off yet. And GE is the world's largest company. It's the original Dow component and it is the most admired company on the planet. And it's a 100-year-old sleepy business that Jack Welsh had re-engineered, rebuilt, and its stock was doubling every two and a half, three years during that, that last 10-year period. So it was a magical time for me. And I credit GE with teaching me how to run a business. was the Jack Welsh era. I'm a disciple of Jack Welsh. And then the fourth thing is experience. So I spent 21 years as a CEO building three different companies for nine Different private equity sponsors. I did 58 acquisitions. I've had billions of dollars in exits. And it, it was the it was there in the beginning of the world of PE. Up until today, there's more than 5 trillion private equity. Back when I first started, you know, there was under a thousand firms. There was under a trillion in capital. It was kind of a newer industry that wasn't on anybody's radar screen. Today, private equity buys and sells half the companies on the planet. And they're the world's largest source of non bank debt for entrepreneurs and founders and people looking for capital. So, industry grew up while I was there. I spent 15 years teaching at universities. I have written two number one best selling books, both of them were number one over the past few days. One of them was written four years ago and it's never been out of the top five in private equity on Amazon. And so that's kind of my background. I got bored. I got bored running companies. I got bored being a CEO. I love teaching. I love working with others. And I'm like, okay, I make a lot of money doing this. Yeah, but it's not really fun anymore. I don't make any money doing this, but I love it. How do I switch my paradigm around? And so I left the CEO seat for the last time about 18 months ago now, and I started a consulting business. I now I'm working with around 50 founders. I'm working with about a dozen different private equity firms, and I'm also doing public speaking. So I even learned how to make money out of teaching and teaching seminars and, and what have you. And I'm having a blast.
0: So that's kind of my background in a nutshell. Okay, so Adam, there's so much there to unpack, especially CEO of multiple companies, 59 acquisitions, the private equity growing up from the early days to now nine tr- or whatever number of trillions of dollars, all this. So, I mean, first off of one, I love the excitement But first question for you, the companies, as they grow, I mean, you took so many companies from this kind of that earlier stage to that that exit. What are the different skill sets? What are the different tools, knowledge that a company needs at the many different phases of a company's growth?
1: It's interesting because when I think about my own kind of experience, for every company I was the CEO of, I was never an expert in that industry. My first job in an industry was as CEO of a company that's been in the industry for decades. And just going from that angle, I had to build up a skill set that would let me come into a new company, a new industry. How am I going to immerse? How am I going to learn the mechanics of how an industry works? And then how am I going to impact that industry or that company in a very short period of time? Because you don't have a lot of time to work with from a a private equity perspective. Typical whole period, call it five years. And you're looking to quadruple a business in size during that five year period. So time's a wasting every second. I think there, there were some pros and cons about. That fact and the fact that I was never an expert when I first got there means the tools I was going to bring to bear kind of became generic. And I would go back to the same playbook every time I got into a new industry, new company. How do I immerse? How do I figure out what's wrong? How am I going to bend the growth curve? How am I going to fire up mergers and acquisition engine? How am I going to add maximum value? While at the same time, building a cool industry leading culture for whatever industry it was that I was working in. And so the companies themselves, as they're going, usually when I'd get there, they were around hundred million to 200 million in size. My goal, would be then to get them to 500 million, call it billion, and to take earnings, EBITDA from like 15 million to 40 in the first hold period, 40 to 70, 80 in the second hold period, well up over 100 in the third. And each of these different segments in a company's kind of evolution, really there's different skills that are brought to bear. And I recently was teaching a seminar, it was like the perfect $100,000 business. It's all about getting out of the gates. When you're a small business going from zero to a million, first of all, let's just drown in some statistics. There's 31 million small businesses in America today. And small business by the government is defined as 500 employees or less. That constitutes 99.9% of all companies in the United States fall in the category of small business. Of that category, only 7% ever hit a million dollars in revenue and only about 40% are profitable. And so why is it that people go south early and what's the difference in the skill set? So let me... Draw this picture out. You talked about all the acquisitions that I've done. If I look at that typical company, these were founder-led companies that became successful because the entrepreneurs were what I call anal retentive control freaks. And if it's I call it the Happy Meal effect. What about a McDonald's Happy Meal? Can I tell you? Well, I know if I go to any city in the United States and I go to a McDonald's and I order a Happy Meal, I'm going to get the same red box, the same yellow ham handles, the same cardboard hamburger, the apple slices that were packaged 100 years ago. I know exactly what I'm going to get. And it's that repeatability that makes call it McDonald's or any business successful as it's growing. And so when you're starting out, the entrepreneur or founder has to be an anal retentive control freak to make sure that all aspects of the business are working correctly to get and find that initial success that gets them out of the gates and gets them growing. And as they're they have to find a second gear in the gearbox. Entrepreneurs top out. And I bought most of the companies that I bought had revenues of between 20 and 30 million. And it was about at that size for those industries where the entrepreneur would run out of bandwidth. They have no more bandwidth. They're anal retentive control freaks. They're successful. They become millionaires. And they've built a little empire. But what hinders them from growth is the very set of skills that they needed to be successful in launching a business. And I call it finding the shift lever on the gearbox and going from being the anal retentive control freak to becoming the conductor of the orchestra. So as a small business is growing, the entrepreneur is like the first chair player in every section of an orchestra, and they have to make sure everything is done the same. It's repeatable. I've got my unit level economics dialed in small. If we replicate this, we're going to be successful. But then to get through their own glass seat, to kind of bust through that Willy Wonka elevator top of the roof, they have to get into this other gear where they now learn how to hire a team surround themselves with talented people, articulate the vision, get them to run towards that shared aspiration. But I now let go. And if I want to be one of the rarest of businesses that goes from, call it 10 million to 100 million of revenue, or one of only 3,000 companies on the planet that are a billion in revenue or bigger, I really, as an entrepreneur, have to let go because it's an entirely different skill set to scale a business than it is when I'm First ramping it up and first finding success. And I think entrepreneurs that can find that gearbox and that shifter, those are the ones who can bust through that glass ceiling and really build something special. So in every aspect of a business, when I'm there, almost always, you know, we're going to be resource constrained. There's not enough capital to invest. How, how are we going to change the paradigm, bend the growth curve and make a different outcome happen? Every company I went into that had that had been in business for 40 years before I got there. Every one of them was growing at kind of a sleepy, single-digit pace. And when I got there, I bent the growth curve, kind of the Jim Collins flywheel effect. And I could get these businesses to grow at 30-plus percent compound annual growth rate in earnings and never stop, just change the direction and establish a new trajectory. And if you can hit that magical 30% growth rate, then a business is going to quadruple in size in roughly the five-year-old period. And so if I want to find success, I first have to bend the growth curve, get on a 30% trajectory, and then hold it. And as I'm going through different size, you know, different size points as a company, some of my activities are going to become different. As I get bigger, mergers and acquisitions, buy and build becomes a lot more driving force behind shareholder value creation. Early days, it's mostly organic. So it's different focused areas but it's always maximizing the potential at each stage of growth.
0: So with that, when you're coming in to get that inflection point that, you know, that's from that steady lower percent to that 30%, you're disrupting a lot of stuff in the company. How do you maintain the culture? Does the culture completely change when you, step in. What happens there? Well, if
1: you haven't noticed, John, I'm a high energy kind of guy. So I'm really known for culture. And so that's one of the other, I think, life lessons that's been really important in my own personal development as an individual. In the army, I started as a private E1 right out of high school. I was the lowest form of life a human being could be. When I looked up, I saw bubble gum on the bottom of somebody else's shoe. That's how low I started in life. And I worked my way up and I've held every job you can hold on an organizational chart from guy who drives truck to CEO. And along the way, you know, I learned that as a CEO, I can't manage revenue. I have to start by managing culture. And if I build a strong culture, especially in a services business where the product is intangible, I can't store service on a shelf, put it in a box. So my product in a service business by default is people. So my DNA for success is I focus on culture. If I build a strong culture, I get an engaged workforce. That engaged workforce takes Care of customers. Customers like that, they give us more stuff and revenue rains from the sky. So by starting with the basic DNA of connecting with people. So one of the ways that I do it is I'm a transparent leader. I make sure that everybody in a company that I'm coming into understands who I am, what I believe, what my goals and objectives are for them as individuals. I want to create an environment where they can spend their entire career in one place to do that. There's four legs to my stool. Pay a fair wage or I'm going to lose talent. You know, In today's world, talent is hard to find. And when you have talent, you have to cultivate and take care of that talent. So pay a fair wage. Or you're going to lose people. And we can't afford to do that in a services business because people are the product too. I have to have great benefits packages. We all get old. We- fall apart. I look out the eyes of a 20-year-old, there's 58-year-old Gomer looking back at me now. We all get older and start falling apart. I heard in places I didn't know existed 30 years ago, we all need good health care. We have to have a good retirement plan. But most important, if you want to keep an employee for their entire career, you have to provide opportunity. And a company that's growing, that's profitable, can invest in its people, can provide growth paths for those people. God bless the person who wants to do the same job for 30 years. We need them. They teach the next generation of employees how to do the work it is that we do, whatever that work is. But I also need the young person that wants to one day be manager or be a regional or a vice president or a CEO or wants to be me. I went from private United States Army to, to CEO across my career. And in this country, you can still do that. So taking care of people is the DNA. They all have different. And so my any company I build, this is not about shareholders. To return. I think another lesson I learned is that in order to be successful and a good steward of investors' capital, I don't have to be a jerk. Matter of fact, profit and culture are not mutually exclusive. They're interrelated. They're correlated. And the better culture I build, the better company I build, the more sustainable that business is, in a downturn or a pandemic, recession, and the more apt it is to survive and thrive in any kind of economic period, including a storm. And so take care of people, good culture, and I can make money for shareholders and I can do all of those
0: things at the same time. So going back to mentioned before around that 100 million founders get stuck. Is it, how do I say Is Do people come to them and say, listen, it's time for you to step down. We're going to bring in experts. Do they realize it? Look at the mirror one well, day. Just let go, me
1: give you another shocking couple of statistics. So 50% of founders who sell to private equity do not survive 18 months in a private equity owned environment. And then of the 50% that do Another 25% or a half of those. So 75% don't make it to the end of the hold period. And so at some Point, if the founder stumbles or fails, then yes, professional leadership, guys like me who've been doing this are brought in to kind of take over. And I think there is an arrogance in success at times where people make the assumption, look, I've built a successful business. I don't need help. I'm it. And then there's some, sometimes people check out, Man, I just sold my money my company for a bunch of money. I can't tell you how many bags and shopping carts full of money I've delivered to entrepreneurs as a result of them selling their company. Companies to And then they check out and it's like, hey, I got the payday. The money's in the bank. I'm done. No, you're just beginning. And the world of institutional capital has a different set of needs. And that's why I wrote the first book, The Private Equity Playbook, was to try to educate founders and entrepreneurs so that they would be successful and recognize what I ultimately learned across 20 years. Why the hell sell? a great company once when you can sell it twice or three times, or my personal record, five times in 13 years. You need to think of an exit, a potential exit, not as the end of the road. It is not a destination. I call it the first rest stop on the wealth creation highway. And as an entrepreneur, if you can become educated, if you can find that second gear, if you can be prepared for the world of private equity, then you can be successful. You can keep on going. Private equity is a tool. I'm a founder. I build something. I get to a certain point. I want to start using OPM. Other people's money is the best kind of money to be using when you want to grow a billion dollar business and you're sitting at a $100 And mergers and acquisitions are going to become a big piece of what I'm going to accelerate the growth of the empire with. And that takes a lot of capital. And so I need those relationships with debt providers, with the private equity firms. And it's not so much their funds or their checkbook. Their checkbook buys the company. Then their checkbook gets put away. What they bring to the table really is the debt relationships that I can leverage to borrow money, and to fuel the further growth of the empire. And so I think the more prepared founders and entrepreneurs are, while they still are the sole shareholder in that company, or one of only a few shareholders, the more prepared they are for what's coming ahead, the more success they will find. I'd like to reverse those demographics and get it to where the statistics say maybe 25% of the founders check out, not 75% in the first five-year period. And I, that's one of the things I do when I'm working with founders is I prepare them for that exit to maximize the potential of the business so that it looks like a private equity-backed company before it actually becomes owned by private equity or it goes to market. Already bend the curve. So here's a funny thing. Anytime a company is being sold in the investment, the SIM or the SIP, the investment prospectus, you know, people will say, magically, we're growing like this. But when you buy this company, it's going to grow like it's never grown before. And I want you to pay me for that rocket ship of growth that's coming on your watch. And magically, it's never done that before in its history, but it's going to start doing it as soon as you pay me too much money to buy it. And what I like to do when I'm working with founders is get in there early, bend that growth curve, and now I'm selling a trajectory that's already been established. And I'm de-risking that company as a platform for private equity before they get a hold of it. And that lets the entrepreneur maximize the exit, get the most, set the market from a valuation perspective for an industry. It de-risks the platform for private equity, and it sets that on up for success in the future when they're going to be an owner, but
0: now a minority shareholder with institutional capital behind them. All right. A lot there. But one question for you is here in Silicon Valley, everyone talks about venture capital. Can you kind of give a how people should look at venture capital and private equity differently.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because when I think of venture capital, I think venture capital is a very tough place to make money. Let me start there. But it's the most accessible piece of private equity that's available to what I'll call the smaller or more common investor. And I think everyone knows Shark Tank, right? So Shark Tank has made the world of VC sexy. But personally when I read individual prospectuses for funds and I look at kind of the return profiles of venture capital, most venture capital funds don't beat the S&P 500. It's you're looking for home runs and it's tough to hit home runs. And when you're an investor in the world of VC, it's a real risky place to be. It's not a place for unsophisticated investors to play. There is a place for venture capital, don't get me wrong. But the typical profile of the people who are investing there, I think, in some respects, is underwhelmed by the returns that they ultimately see from a VC fund. So VC is an investor in dreams. And buyout funds, which is the largest category of private equity, VC is also a piece of private equity, but it's a smaller piece. The largest piece of private equity is called buyout funds. Buyout funds don't invest in dreams, they buy companies that have track records, that have histories of revenue and earnings. And 100% growth rate in the world of VC is I went from a dollar of revenue to $2 of revenue. It's 100% growth. And in the world of buyout, it's they've got a decade or More of track record. Again, every company I went into had been in existence for 40 years, and I got them to bust the growth curve and get on a 30 plus percent growth rate and take them someplace that they had never been before. So VC is investing in dreams. Think of it more as it's a home run derby every time you step to the plate. And there's a lot of strikeouts, there's a lot of hits, but it's essentially you're swinging for a home run every time. In the world of buyout funds, you're looking for singles and doubles. And so batting average, batting average is really low in VC and it's higher in buyout funds. So private equity is separated into different categories. VC is a category, but it is speculative by its very design. Buyout funds are a little bit less risky because these are established companies. And I'm looking for good returns but i'm not looking for the next uber style vc home run where i invested a dollar and i got back 8 million or whatever i mean huge returns one in a one in a billion i'm looking for i want to hit a single every time i'm up at the plate i'm going to have a single a double and generally over time you know private equity in the buyout fund category returns double the s&p 500 vc takes a special company a special fund and a special firm to beat the S&P and to beat, call it a buyout fund type return profile. They are out there, but it's, uh, it's a different world. I'm
0: investing in a dream. I'm
1: investing in something that's real and it already
0: exists. So when a private equity group comes and knock in, knocking, how should kind of evaluate them? What questions should you ask? How should you know if they're the right ones or not?
1: With 6,000 plus private equity firms out there, it's probably impossible to think if you're a founder, you have not been called at least multiple times in the last 12 months. There is over $5 trillion in capital. You threw out $9 trillion. It depends on whether you include debt funds and how you want to define the world of private equity. It's large. It's a lot of damn zeros, let me tell you that. My latest statistics would say there's probably around 1.9 trillion in powder or money that's committed to funds that are out looking for companies to buy. And so private equity is just constantly expanding into new industries and new niche markets and corners of the world that they weren't in 20 years ago looking for something to buy because they have to put the money to work. Worst thing a private equity fund can do is not put money to work. I commit as an investor, a pile of capital, if they can't find stuff to buy, I'm looking for double the S&P 500 return. What's worse than that? Zero. If you don't put my money to work, I get no return. I could have been in the market earning 8%. Next time you come to me looking to raise a fund and you want money from me, you know the answer is no, because you didn't put my money to work last time. And that really happens. So this money has to get invested. So you're getting calls. And the wrong time to think about being a seller is when your telephone is ringing. The right time to be thinking about exit strategy, which is the second book I wrote, The Exit Strategy Playbook, was really to be focused around let's start with you as an individual. What are your goals and objectives? What are we trying to accomplish here? Because before I know whose phone call I should take and who I should be talking to and what the questions are I should be asking, I first have to kind of line up my goals and objectives as an individual. And then the universe of buyers can be sorted based on my goals and objectives. And very quickly, I'll figure out it's not 6,000 firms out there I should be talking to. It's a handful of firms that, that I should be talking to. So let me give you an example. Let's assume that we're an entrepreneur and we're in our 50s. And I've built a business over decades and I'm thinking about selling it. Phone's ringing, but I have no idea you know, about what's the different characteristics of these different buyers. Let's start with, do we want to continue in our business or not? Are we seeking to retire? If I'm in my 70s, maybe the answer is I want to walk out the back door. Well, selling to private equity is not the place to sell. If you're going to be a platform investment. Because they're going to look for you not only to not retire, but to become a large rollover investor and work harder than you've ever worked before in your life to get their investors a return on their capital, which is going to be double the S&P 500 on average. They're looking for a three bagger, a four bagger. You're like, ah, I'm at my destination. I want to walk out. These guys want me to work hard. I'm going to be in that 50% statistic that doesn't last 18 months. But if I'm 50 and I want to keep rolling, maybe then a private equity port, I could either be a portfolio company or I could be bought by a strategic buyer backed by private equity. And I could get to keep going because they keep the lights on versus keep the lights off. I mean, I talk about a bunch of concepts. There's financial buyers, there's strategic buyers. Financial buyers are strictly money coming to the table, looking for a company to buy and writing a check. Strategic buyers, no matter how they're backed, private, public, PE, etc. When a company buys a company, that's a strategic buyer. Strategic buyers fall into two categories. Those that turn the lights off, meaning they're going to fully suck your business up inside the Borg, the mother ship, and then they're going to turn the lights off on your business and they'll give you some parting gifts and off you go. That's strategic buyer, turn the lights off. There's strategic buyer, turn the lights on. Hey, welcome to the club. We want you to stay. We want you to help become a part of our future. If they're backed by private equity, I could potentially make a rollover investor investment. I could make an equity investment in the mothership. I could become a part of something bigger look for a second bite of the apple. So there's IPOs, there's SPACs, there's owner operators, buyouts. There's so many different ways I could exit a business When your phone rings, you better know who the hell you want to talk to. Because what happens is you start thinking any potential exit's a good potential exit. You waste time. I can't tell you how many entrepreneurs he calls. They say, okay, let's explore this path. An NDA gets signed. Diligence is done. Months later, it's like, I don't like the offer I got. I don't like that. They lied to me. They threw out a headline number. They got a proprietary look under the cover, and then they retraded my price. If You really need to have your ducks in a row and everything lined up before you take anyone's phone call. And that was the purpose of the second book, to help entrepreneurs think through an exit because not all exits are the same. There's a lot of different kinds of buyers. They have different needs. They each will pay differently for a respective business. And so you're trying to line up your goals and objectives with the right universe of buyers to get the maximum potential for your business, but more importantly, the right outcome that you're
0: seeking. I love the Star Trek reference, especially with the Borg there, seven of nine. Fantastic. Let's dive deeper into that second book, The Exit Strategy playbook. You've mentioned a couple of times second by the Apple. Can we talk a little bit about rollover invested in the residual income stream? Dive into that a little bit when selling a company. Yeah.
1: So when I wrote the first book, it was because most people had a negative connotation around private equity. They didn't understand it. And they're buying more than 50% of the companies on the planet. And as I think about what the benefit of working with private equity or exiting to private equity, whether it's as a portfolio company, where you're the base, that they're going to build the empire from a lot of responsibility on you or whether it's a strategic that buys you and you're joining you know, and it's already an adventure in progress. And you're one of 30 companies that gets put together to build this big company. You get to make this thing called a rollover investment. As a matter of fact, it's required. You're not going to be selling to a private equity firm or to a strategic that's owned by private equity. If it's turning, the if the lights are staying on and you're staying, they want you to have skin in the game, not to check out because you got a pile of cash. So that's called aligning interest. So if you think of it this way, the world's most sophisticated investors and the most sophisticated investment class is private equity. They're on average doubling the S&P 500. That's why it's gone from under 1,000 firms to 6,000 plus firms. That's why it's gone to over 5 trillion in capital. It is generating the returns. As a founder, I hear a lot of arrogance from founders who say, hey, look, if I'm not the sole shareholder in control, I don't want to have anything to do with it because I'm the guy. And I don't trust or I don't want to believe in the potential benefit of working with someone else. So I've spent a long time trying to educate people. That's not a very good view of the potential. And that goes back to my comment about selling isn't a destination. It's the first rest stop on a highway. And Boy, when you roll over, let's say 30, and then you become a part of, you're a minority shareholder, you have institutional shareholders over you, but they're in the business of making money. And they're going to go out and pour a bunch of money and buy a bunch of companies and put them together in order to exit within five years. And if you can get a 3X or a 4X multiple of invested capital, the math looks really good. It gets very compelling very quickly. And so in in my books and in, in my teachings, I use very specific examples so uh, there's a guy out there i call him sam his name's not really sam but he lives in the part of the country that you're in and he now owns a winery but sam sold me his business for like 16.4 million he would have taken all his money off the table if he could have he became a rollover investor in an empire because he had to because we required it. And so he rolls over 4.4 million, he takes 12 million home and diversifies his asset hopes to one day get his money back. Well, I buy eight more companies after him and then seven, 27 months later we sell the company. It's a 4x multiple of invested capital. So his 4.4 returned 17.6. Original exit was 16.4. Guys now made 29.6 million on a business that had 2 million million of EBITDA at the time that we bought it the first time, rolls over again, now waiting for a third bite. It's like by the time the guy is done, he'll have made $50 million on a company that that was properly valued at 16 when he sold it the first time. If you did not believe in that adventure, you don't get the second bite. You don't get the third bite. You're talking about what's funner than selling the company once, sell it two or three times. I love the idea of diversifying an asset base. And I think that oftentimes investors or founders have way too much of their net worth tied up in the asset known as their company. I created a rule for Forbes. I called the rule of 130. If you take your age and you add to that the percent of your net worth that's tied up in your business and the number equals more than 130, probably time for you to start thinking about diversifying your asset base. Maybe not a full sale of the company, but at least a partial sale, something to start sucking some of the money out of this asset known as your company so that you can be a squirrel hiding it in the tree for winter. Because things like pandemics happen. Things like airplanes flying into buildings happen. Things like wars really do happen. Although we've gone through an incredible run in our country of prosperity, bad things happen. And it seems in today's world, they happen with more frequency than they used to. So I really counsel entrepreneurs that you need to diversify your asset base bad things can happen. And that's another mistake entrepreneurs make is they think if they're running a successful business today, it will never be impacted by anything. It'll always be there. Imagine if you owned a chain of restaurants when the pandemic hit, you know, what the hell happened to you? Imagine you owned a chain of movie theaters when the pandemic hit. What happened to you? Bad things do happen. So I believe that entrepreneurs need to think about Working with private equity, not as selling out their empire and retiring. It's about diversification of assets rolling over. Why roll over here? Because you just built this business. You know it better than anyone. You know its potential. So if you don't believe in your company, take your money and run. But if you actually believe your company with capital and other smart people around you can help you really blow this thing out, Why wouldn't you want to invest in that? And that's the vehicle that private equity helps entrepreneurs accomplish. We're going to give you the vehicle to ride our coattails. We're going to make money for our investors because that's what we're in the business of doing. Grab on, roll over, become a player in this. And you're going to get your returns as our thank you. And so it's very powerful that this idea of rollover and getting multiple bites of the apple and it can be very lucrative for shareholders too. So it just in, in thinking of mergers and acquisition, I once bought 20 companies. Now, this is a subset. I bought more than that, but I just took 20 at the time. On average, I paid five times, five times EBITDA. Each company had 2 million in EBITDA. So, you know, I bought 20 times. Two times five is 10 times 20. I spent $200 million. Banks would let me borrow five times debt. So I borrowed the 200 million. I had no equity come in to buy those 20 companies. When I sold the combined business, it sold for 13 plus times. That's five hundred and twenty million of enterprise value. Pay off the two hundred million in debt. That's three hundred twenty million of profit without doing anything other than buying twenty small companies, putting them together because larger companies are rarer. Companies are worth more money. Bigger funds can put more money to work. They want bigger companies. The multiples those companies trade for much higher, and so. The arbitrage alone when I'm doing a buy and build and buying a bunch of small companies and putting them together is a reason why if I'm an entrepreneur, I might want to do a rollover investment. Join this group of other like-minded entrepreneurs that are being assembled to create an industry-leading large company. I can make a lot of money there. And so, as a founder, the better educated you are, the more you understand the mechanics of how private equity works, how it can benefit me as a seller and what it can do to create what I call generational wealth. Selling a company for 20, 30 million, big ass payday. No question. Pay some taxes and you can live nicely. But what about making 50 or 60 million by selling the same company a couple of times? What about ultimately for me, the goal and objective is, and I define generational wealth as $100 million. You know, it's like, why stop at 20? If you sell your company and walk out the door, someone gives you a wheelbarrow full of money. And what's the first thing you have to do? Just figure out what the hell to do with it. Well, that's a high class problem, I'll grant you that. But I'd rather give a bunch of it to somebody else to manage. I'll keep running the business. I'll roll over a chunk, and this will be my personal investment in my personal business that I built, and I'll go again. So that, that that's why I think rollover investing can be such a powerful
0: tool for entrepreneurs and founders. With that rollover investing, how much should I say due diligence, or how many questions should you ask for their plan for that private equity that's coming in for the next three years? For the oh, you should years? ask
1: all kinds of questions. So, and that's why too. It's like there's six thousand firms out there. Just because your phone rings doesn't mean you got the right buyer. You know, think of it. It's like boiler room. I mean, there are good people and bad people in any industry that is diverse and has thousands of players. It's like a reflection of society in general. You'll find partners who are really good and you'll find partners who are really bad. And just because your phone ring doesn't mean that you got a good one. Matter of fact, I would say the likelihood that you got the right buyer because someone cold called you is probably so in it's like you may as well just go buy a lottery ticket. And that's why when you talk to your buddies at Rotary or YPO and they're saying, Well, what's your experience with private equity? Mine sucked. Mine was good. It's so hit or miss because they never put any thought into who was the right buyer to be to begin with. But when I think about questions, it's hey, I want to talk to other founders that have sold you a business. I want to talk to those that are in your portfolio today. I want to talk to those who have realized another turn and are now working with somebody else. I want to talk to the last founder you fired. See what kind of response you get on that question. I want to understand what it's like to work with you. I want to understand what it's like when I become divorced from you because it didn't work. And how were those founders treated? I'm going to ask very tough questions. But the funniest part, Sean, is that when I'm a buyer and I'm working with private equity, and I'm buying those companies, the 58 companies. I'm asking them a lot of questions whenever the tables turn. Do you have anything you'd like to ask us? Crickets. Crickets is the response. They don't know what to ask. And hey, talk to me about your typical investment thesis. Talk to me about the thesis you've created for my business in this industry. What's the kind of return profile you're modeling? And talk to me about how many funds you've generated in your history, and what have been the average returns on those funds, and what's your average multiple of invested capital on every company that you buy? And I want to know this and this, and so I literally give in my books a list of questions that that you can ask. If you don't know what to ask, don't ever let there be crickets in the room. Here's a list. Just pull out my book and start reading off the questions. And then finally, there's a human element. Do you like these people because you're about to get married to them? and it's an arranged marriage. It's an arranged marriage because they're paying the highest price you think for the business. So you're about to go to bed with them. Do you even like them? Because you're going to be a partner with them for probably five years if it goes well. Longer than that, if it's a bad investment or if things go south, kind of the joke in private equity. If it's a short hold period, it's a great return. If it's a long hold period, that's the dog with fleas that they keep to the end of the fund and then figure out what the hell to do with. And in the meantime, they've raised three other funds. And so your dog with fleas doesn't impact fundraising anymore. So it's gone, You know, but they're trying to fix it. So I even would ask things like, what's the average hold period for your investments? I want some hard math. Don't tell me it's about five years. No, I want to know how many companies have you bought in the last, You know, in the life of your firm, what was the average hold period for each one? What's the average multiple of invested capital? What kind of IR are you returning to your limited partners? I want to understand what an investment with you in my business looks like for me. What kind of modeled return? What are the assumptions you're making with respect to growth and the components of growth and organic growth and margin improvement and mergers and acquisition? I want to know if you got enough capital to handle my investment. If we go out and buy 20 companies, where's that capital going to come from? Because it ain't coming from their fund. It's going to come from debt relationships that they have. But it's like, there are so many questions you can ask. And then how, who am I going to deal with? Am I going to be dealing with associates, with principals and vice presidents, with partners? You know, what's... Tell me how you plug into my business. What's your cadence with management? I call it the hands-on, hands-off. And if you're a person who likes, doesn't want to be micromanaged, and you sell to a firm that's very hands-on and has weekly phone calls and they're in your shorts 10 times a month, you know, you're going to get frustrated with that experience. So there's a lot of things you need to learn about in that exit partner. And so asking the right questions helps you kind of learn about that firm. You'd
0: also mention margin expansion. And I know that was also talked about in your first book, The Private Equity Playbook. Can you, especially with the current environment, can you go a little bit deeper into what that is? Yeah, for, for some-
1: me, improving margin, let's start with an old wives tale. So you've heard the saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, my my response or retort to that is just because it's not broke doesn't mean it's efficient. What I generally like to do when I get into a company, most of the companies that I get into are underinvested in technology. And I want to empower my employees to use their God-given talents and skills to do what I call high value work. And I wanna automate low value work or try to invest in technology to be helpful to them. So let me give you some examples. Let's say I'm running a trades-based business and it's a bunch of electricians. These are highly skilled people. There's a shortage of tradespeople. people. I don't want them doing paperwork. I don't want them driving long distances between jobs. I don't want them to have to go to the supply house half of their day to go chase wire or parts or pieces that. They they need to do their work. I want them to do nothing but high value work, which is to sit in front of that client's machine or if it's a commercial or a house if they're wiring, you know what whatever that electrician is doing, I want them to be doing electrician work. And I want to take and use technology to automate things in their life to make them more productive. So an example, if they leave their house, I know they've left their house. If they're an hourly paid employee, I can clock them in because I'm tracking movements of the vehicle, the vehicle left the barn. I know where they're going because their first service call is loaded inside their phone from my dispatching system. They're in route. When they get there, GPS geofencing, I know they've arrived. I can log them in. The client is a commercial client. I have to notify Target or somebody that that my electrician has showed up. I can use an automated email. I can interact with their system electronically through APIs. I can let them know my person is on site. I can now, if it's a time and materials call, they're on site. This is travel time. This is on-site time. And then when I'm interacting with those people, if they take something out of their truck, they use their phone, they scan a bin, and it automatically gets put onto the work order. They don't have to fill out all that stuff. If they got 10 of that item on their truck, and they're using one a week, and they're now down to two or four, whatever my resupply point is, I'm collecting parts in a box that they're using. As soon as they get to a restock point, I now ship all those parts to wherever they're told They scan them into their truck. There are so many things I could do to help a skilled worker do nothing but skilled work. And the more I can invest in technology and enable them to focus on the high-value stuff and not the low-value stuff, that leads to productivity. And that leads to margins. And so it's technology, it's ERP systems, it's intelligence from data. And think about AI and all of these technologies that we're blessed with in today's world And if I can bring all of that to bear on my not very sexy company, I can actually get huge productivity increases. I once ran a laundry company and over a five-year period, we increased employee productivity by more than 40%. And if you're talking about a company with hundreds of millions of revenue and you get a 40% increase in employee productivity, talk about profitability, bending the growth curve. And I was in a Microsoft TV commercial back in the day and Satya Nadella was giving speeches and running around with washers and dryers that were cut in half that had cool little neon lights in them and could talk about all the new Microsoft products and services and how unsexy companies deployed and used them to drive 40-plus percent productivity gains. And so it's it's usually investing in technology. It's challenging the status quo. And it's thinking about people differently. It's not about, can I do less? Can I cut people? It's about, I'm going to grow like this. I want my cost structure to grow at a slower pace, but I'm going to be hiring people, investing in people. And the companies that I built during recessions are hiring people, not letting people go. And because of technology, I can service more revenue and be more efficient with the workforce. And so the workforce is growing at a lower pace than revenue. That
0: delta creates margin improvement. Okay. Now, stepping away from the books to kind of what you're doing now, you got the nickname the chairman. Yeah. How did you get that nickname? And could you talk a little bit about your executive circle?
1: Heard of like YPO and Vistage, things like that. C. Fox, who's a guy that I work with on my seminar business and the teaching businesses he created this concept. So essentially, I'm teaching a seminar with hundreds of people in a room. They've come from all over the globe. I'm teaching them all of this private equity stuff. I'm doing it in modules. This is material I've perfected over over a decade plus in lecturing at business schools. And I'm teaching entrepreneurs how to maximize their business, how to grow their business, how to do M&A, how to exit, all of this stuff. And then it was like, okay, well, hey, there are we literally had a room. Some businesses, some people were billionaires sitting in that room. Some people are running small businesses. They're all different sizes and shapes. This is high value stuff. Let's create a peer group and you can hire me to be your chairman. I serve on a lot of boards today and I work with leadership teams and help them maximize the potential of their companies. So we put together a peer group of 30 plus people who are paying to be a member of this peer group. They become the board. I'm the chairman of the board. We work on their companies. And so I coach them individually. I coach them collectively as a group. And then we get together online once a month. We're going to get together in person twice a year for three or four days and focus on improving our companies. And instead of using case studies, we're going to be using our own companies. So it's essentially, it's a very high level peer group that includes very successful entrepreneurs who are harnessing the collective power of the other entrepreneurs in the room. Me as the guy who's built billion dollars businesses is the chairman of the board. So I work with them individually. I challenge them. We work collect- Collectively as a group. And someone just came up with the name. It's the chairman. Adam serves on boards. He's he's an executive chairman in some companies and a board member in others. He's been a CEO. We're hiring Adam as the chairman. So kind of kind of that's how where it came out of it. It's a it's an expensive peer group for people who really want to focus on blowing it out. And it's coached by me and people who've built billion-dollar businesses. So in the world of consulting, there are people who approach their work from a theoretical perspective. God bless them some of them are my clients and then there's people who approach life from a practical set of experience i've done more MA than any of them have done i have bought and sold more companies than any of them will ever sell i've built big businesses i've worked with multiple private equity firms over my career so i can take all of those experience from practical from a practical perspective and then bring that to bear on their companies and it can be really impactful in a very short amount of time which is
0: the other thing so so that, that's what's going on there. Before wrapping up another question and then kind of the segue out, but there's so many mastermind groups here in Silicon Valley and you always hear about others. What should an entrepreneur or founder of a company, what should they be looking for in that network, that executive circle? And then what else are you working on? What else are we going to see from you in the coming years?
1: Yeah. So thank you for that. So listen, from my perspective, what's going to add the most value to entrepreneurs. If I'm thinking Silicon Valley and technology, I would challenge the convention that says you want to surround yourself with people who look and think and act like you. The diversity in business experience and knowledge. If I'm going to build an advisory group, I tell most of the people that I work with, most every board I'm serving on today, I never was a CEO in those industries. Right? Growth is generic. M&A is generic. Exit strategy is generic. And so let the entrepreneur be the expert in their industry. And what they want to surround themselves with are people who potentially can help them if they're a services business or maybe it's they need help from a marketing perspective, from a visibility perspective, a generous people who've got private equity experience or have exit experience. It's not just about, can I get a bunch of people that look like me and we can sit in a room and practice? Group think. And then when I think about who is sitting in the room, the problem with most peer groups, at least for me, was. If I'm going to be this, the guy in the room is doing all the talking. I'm not going to be doing any learning. I'm giving and I'm not receiving. And I think too many peer groups, we're not getting enough out of them. And I do think there's a time and place for masterminds. I teach masterminds for sure. Subject matter experts are important, but they're a small piece. If you want to build a real successful business, you're going to need more than people who give you group things. You're going to have to have people who can help you strategize about marketing and branding and image and people who can help you strategize around growth and the levers of growth and what exits look like. And so I think too often we're joining peer groups for the right reason, but we're getting the wrong group and we're not getting a lot of value out. And I tend to, I don't want to be the smartest guy in the room. If I am, there's a problem. I'm not in the right, I'm not in the right room, right? That's what they tell you. So you want to make sure you're putting yourself in a room of people where you're not the smartest person in that room. And, And sometimes it'll include some people who teach theory Because they're very good at it. And in other kind other times, it's gonna also include people who've been there, done that, not once, not twice, but for a whole career. And I can learn from all of those people, but I want to make sure I get in a diverse environment. So next up for me, let's see, I'm working on my third book right now. It is called Empire Builder. I've always perfected books as lectures first. So that book is now underway officially. Hope to have it on the shelves of bookstores whether that's virtually or figuratively or actual books on bookshelf stores, time for the holidays for sure. By the end of this year, I am teaching seminars. There are seminar opportunities that come up all the time. I am also working with founders and am available to serve as a coach and mentor working with founders. I am working with a lot of private equity firms, helping them evaluate investments and serving on their boards, helping their leadership teams at the portfolio company level grow. You can find me online, LinkedIn. I'm very responsive. Just spell the name right, Adam Coffee, C-O-F-E-Y. I'm the other kind of coffee. And You can find me on LinkedIn, adamecoffee.com. I am always interacting with people who read my books, who follow my content, and I appreciate them. I really do. I live a great life because I've built a great network over decades. And so very thankful for everybody out there who who follows the work that I do. So
0: that's about it, Sean. That's... That's looking like a wrap. All right. So we got to get you back on the show when the release of your third book comes out. So for our audience out there, please look for that. If Adam can spare us a little bit of time, that'd be fantastic. And for the audience out there, when well, I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast, I'm a midmark investor and banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital. So deal with private equity all day long. And I'd love to have a conversation with anyone out there. Connect with me on LinkedIn or go to The Silicon Valley Podcast where you can contact me and see all our past shows and find out what we're up to. And with that, Adam, I want to thank you for your time on this week's episode of The Silicon Valley Podcast.
1: Thank you to all your listeners. Glad to be here.
0: Thank you for listening to The Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.